When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now this week's big episode is Volume 5 of the Great Rock Stories series. The first four have all had great download numbers and I haven't done one since last year, so, well, here's number five. I've had so many great guests on the show over the last, what, two and a half years now, so... I know not everyone listening right now has probably checked out every single episode, and that's okay. There is an awful lot of them. So this is a nice way to not only highlight the older interviews, but also maybe open some eyes or ears to a new audience too. Now, if you're not listening to this on the Vintage Rock Pod channel, then also give us a follow, subscribe, like, or whatever it's called on your podcast app on the Vintage Rock Pod channel, because I release a new episode every single day, and you can only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So please do check it out and get all the brilliant classic rock content daily. So on this episode, we dive back to episodes 32 to 37 back in June and July 2021. And I pick out some brilliant stories from my guests I had on at that time. And we're going to start with someone who broke big in the 80s on the famous Sunset Strip in LA. Him and his band were big friends with the likes of Van Halen. It was all about hedonism. And as he says in the full interview, it was all about the peas for him. Pussy party paycheck. I am talking about Rat lead singer Stephen Piercy. Now I'm going to play a short snippet from that interview with him on episode 32, talking about those crazy days. 
Now that Sunset Strip, it's famous to even us in the UK, as I said, and you think of the names of like the whiskey and the rainbow, it was riotous, it was crazy, and there'll never be another Sunset Strip of the 80s ever again, will there? Ever, ever. And it's a, it's a drag, but you know, <laughs> that's just the way it is. It was like the 60s and the Doors, right? The Doors, 60s, whiskey. That's all relevant. It's crazy. Van Halen played the uh, the whiskey. I got an original poster uh, in my office where I'm at my studio right here. Wow. And uh, Alice Cooper's opening up for him. <laughs> and and I mean, look, everybody's played there. Priest, Zeppelin. I mean, you name it. And and to play there, it's it, it just has that. F- that feel like you know uh, morrison puked over there janice was doing this over there so hendrix was hanging over here you know uh neil diamond was even hanging out over here you know perfect did you have a favorite venue there that you like playing or like visiting whiskey always mm-hmm. always it was gazari's because gazari has the same uh the same vibe as the whiskey when it was Gazari's with Bill Gazari. I mean, you had to earn your way in there. And I did. It was one of the first clubs I started playing in 1980 when I moved Mickey rat to LA and same thing doors, Van Halen and rat, whoever knows who played that place. I mean, even more uh, incredible history. And then they tore it down and did this and that. And there you go. At least the whiskey, they're keeping it there. Yeah. They're, it's, it should be a historic monument, actually. Your first EP came out and it went an absolute storm, selling six figures. It's the sort of numbers that many bands can only dream of for, for albums. And mm-hmm. that led to a deal with Atlantic and your debut album and then out of the cellar. And that just absolutely shot you and the band into the stratosphere, didn't it? Yeah. And it's, you know, to be honest, and, and I said it even in that book, I think, and I say it sometimes now in conversation jokingly, is I don't remember a good four or five, four years through the pinnacle of it all. I remember certain things, headlining Madison Square Garden, playing (laughs) Donington or doing this or doing that getting these awards and and but uh, everything else is just a big blur smear on the tr- you know, chalkboard because it was groundhog day every day you know and it was nice to pull out of that and it was just fate that i stopped the band in 91 because that's when all that grunge supposedly poop started happening and it kept us out of the mix we didn't have to try to prove ourselves and I went off and did something else, you know. But yeah, it's it's a crazy ride. And what do you remember of Donington then? You mentioned that over here in the UK. I mean, Donington's a huge name festival. Everyone knows about Donington and the history it's got. What do you remember of your time there? <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if I just said this story. Um, if somebody, uh, you know, they accept you by throwing mud at you, right? And, and if it's raining, whatever. So that means they <laughs> love you, right? We're like, oh, okay, we can deal with that. And somebody threw a pig head up there on stage when we were playing. What? And I'm kicking this thing around thinking this head is fake, right? It was a real pig head somebody threw on stage. That's what I remember about Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> and a big, big crowd. Yes. You know, to where you went, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> and by the way, Brilliant. we played. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we played with Iron Maiden and, and stuff like that. It was pretty cool, you know? Yeah, always a brilliant lineup, wasn't there, on that festival? Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. 
The brilliant Stephen Piercy there, lead singer with the band Rat. As you'd expect from a man part of the crazy scene, he's got some fantastic stories to tell, including about Van Halen and Tony Kittane and more. Check them all out on episode 32 of Vintage Rock Pod. Next up, let's uh, switch gears somewhat. Staying in the 80s, though, for this chat. A brilliant guitarist, so talented. He's been with Toto since the 70s. I'm talking about Steve Lukather. Now, this interview from episode 34 is one of my very, very favourites. As well as Toto, he talks about the incredible jam that happened when he, he met with his friend George Harrison, as you do, that ended up with him playing with Bob Dylan and George and Jeff Lynne. Plus the story that I'm about to play you as well about his involvement on one of the biggest selling albums of all time you put down tracks and stuff for thriller and beat it i think you told the story that almost that was recorded backwards as well wasn't it yeah well it was recorded because there was another version of it before eddie did the solo and somebody cut the two-inch tape which screwed up the simpty code which locks all the tapes up again yep. so quincy asked me and jeff to put the record back together again because they needed to keep those tracks first generation because that was a, you know, that was a, so you had to think about that back then. And uh, so Jeff, there was no click track or nothing. Jeff had to go out and make his own click based on the, the bleed through of Michael's lead vocal in the headphones wow. that was recorded while he was doing the vocal. And Michael hitting two and four, like, on a, on a drum case. And so Jeff went out and made his own click with drumsticks then he played the drums to that and he locked it up by the second take he, he nailed. It. And so then I started putting all the guitars on it. I played the bass on it. And I, at first I made since I knew Eddie was playing on it and Quincy was at the Westlake audio and we were at sunset sound. He wasn't even there. We were on the phone going, Bobby, here's what's going on. And we made the whole record, but I quadrupled the, the I made a big marshals <laughs> and everything like that. And Quincy's like, I love it, but it's too much. <laughs> I got to get this on R&B radio. I can't do it with these, you know, it's too big. Use one of your little fender amps and turn down the distortion a little bit. You know what I mean? So I had to redo that. And then I went over and worked with Michael and Quincy on the rest of it, you know. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And came up with some of the other ideas uh, to help them with the rest of the parts. Because I played all the guitars and the bass. And Jeff played drums. And that's and Michael sang and Eddie played the solo. So I mean, a lot of people think Eddie played all the riffs and everything like that, but he didn't. Did you? Yeah. Wow. And then obviously the, the girl is mine with, with Paul McCartney and everything you worked with him. That was the first thing. That was the first thing we cut for Thrill. That was the first one, was it, really? Yeah. And then, and then believe me, that was a thrill when Jeff and I got that call. We were like, oh, wow, McCartney. Finally get to meet a Beatle, man. We were really expecting McCartney. Wow, you know. 
And so that was a wonderful experience. Him and Linda were so awesome. And then we got invited to do Give My Regards to Broad Street, but they didn't tell us we had to wear makeup and wigs until we got there. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was that was an incredible experience just for the hang for two weeks with Paul, Linda, George Martin, Jeff Emmerich, their engineer. And I got to sit in every lunch day, sit around and talk about it. So how did you get the sound on this? And what did you do? How did you record that? But my, my, man, I love this. What was the thought process here? And I and they all love to talk about it. So it was really just like a dream come true. Wow. Geek out time. Absolutely. I'm still a fan, man. I'm still a fan of music and musicians. I mean, even though I've been doing this a long time, I got to work with so many incredible legends and stuff like that. Really famous people yeah. and stuff. I mean, I don't get starstruck per se anymore, but I do get like humbled and wow, I can't, I, you know, I'm respecting that I've got invited into this room with these guys. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It doesn't get old. And I'm, I don't think I'm all that. I'm still like really humble and I can't even believe I'm here most of the time. You know? <laughs> the amazing Steve Lukather. Please, please, please check out that interview in full episode 34. You won't be disappointed. Right, next up, let's hear from Paul Carrack. He first kind of tasted fame in the band Ace singing the song, How Long? Has this been going on? Then with many other projects, including Squeeze, Solo Career, and then found himself with Genesis Mike Rutherford in his side project that went on to stardom, Mike and the Mechanics. So in this clip, you're going to hear about how all that came about. Mike and the Mechanics, it was a, a side project originally by Mike Rutherford. Everyone knows from Genesis. I mean, another question, how did you get involved with that one? <laughs> I had by this time left Squeeze. I got a call from a guy called B.A. Robertson, yep, Scottish, yep. who I didn't really, I didn't really know. He was, he's a songwriter. He'd, he'd written this song that he wanted to pitch into a movie. And um, he'd had a discussions and he said, you know what? We should get that guy who sang How Long to sing this for us. <laughs> Cheeky devil. <laughs> and um, he just rang me up and said, would you fancy doing it? Wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, okay. I lived in in London at the time and in this, their studio was just around the corner. So I went and sang this uh, demo for them. And um, he said, Oh, by the way, I'm writing songs with Mike Rutherford from Genesis. He's doing a solo project. Would you be interested coming down and trying out singing a few songs? And I said, yeah, sure. So I finished up going down there with him and um, they had recorded a load of tracks, you know, backing tracks without real lead vocals. And uh, they had this one track that was like three chords going on for about seven minutes. And they said, just go in there and blues away, you know, just blues away. We've got this bit, you know, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. And then just, you know, do anything. So I did. And they liked the sound of it. And BA went off and wrote this weird lyric to it. And um, that became eventually, that was Silent Running. And uh, that was the first release for Mike and the Mechanics. Absolutely. And then you sang on that and you sang on other big songs as well, didn't you? I mean, The Living Years, which went to number one in, in America. I mean, that must have been incredible. Yeah. It, it's always a bit surreal when it's happening over there. I mean, like, yeah. going back to how long, we were just buying uh, Billboard magazine every week, with, which had the, you know, the main chart. And it, it was it just went up in you know very slowly over months. It doesn't happen like that now, you know, with all these campaigns where it just comes in at its highest point and then drops out. But this it just worked its way up the top two hundred, almost to the top, 
But um, Living Years, yeah, that uh, a num- uh, number one. And the video, of course, by this time, videos were kicking off. So, uh, yeah. We had four Grammy nominations for the Living Years. It was like best video, best vocal, best song, best this, that, and the other. You know, we, we performed live, and it was pretty scary. The front row was all these incredible people, you know, Michael McDonald, Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Stevie Wonder, I think, was there. Uh, so it's pretty scary. But then um, Bette Midler was also up for best song and she came on and the crowd went nuts. And she did that song, The Wind Beneath My Wings, tore the place apart. And I thought, please don't give us the award, for God's sake, and never get out of here alive, you know. So, uh, yeah. Incredible. The incredibly humble Paul Carrack there, who's worked and toured with some incredible acts. I mean, Roxy Music, The Smiths, Elton John, B.B. King, The Pretenders, Ringo Starr. He played the famous Wall concert in Berlin for Roger Waters singing Hey You. I mean, fantastic, fantastic career and some brilliant stories. Check them all out in full on the interview on episode 36 of Vintage Rock Pod. Right, still to come, there's some stories from a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and a man who is the lead singer of Rainbow with Richie Blackmore. But next, we'll go to the 80s and hear from Dock and bass player Jeff Pilson. Jeff was part of the classic lineup of the band that shot to fame in the mid and late 80s, part of that scene along with Rat and others. And in this clip, we talk about those days and what he felt when Dokken ultimately split. And you became a key part of that classic lineup. I mean, Don George making yourself three platinum albums, five year period where you really did strike gold. Yeah. It was the heady days of the 80s, wasn't it? I mean, what was your overriding memories now looking back at that kind of glam rock, hair metal, hard rock, whatever you want to label it as, the, the era with MTV kind of really exploded? What's your overriding memories of looking back at that now? Uh, my overriding memories are it was a lot of fun. We definitely had a lot of fun. Um, you know, we, we indulge in everything that one would indulge in in that period. But, you know, there was, there was a lot of f- good camaraderie, a lot of fun between everybody. I mean, you know, part of me wishes I would have done things like, oh, acquired equipment back then, because, you know, this would have cost a lot less back then, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But, um, but the overriding, overarching theme is that, you know, it was great being in a band, you know, you had that feeling like, you know, we're, we're going to conquer together and, and that kind of thing. And Dokken was never known for a lot of camaraderie with all four of us, but there were moments of it and the moments were, were, were quite wonderful. And you talk about camaraderie within the band and stuff and the way it was, but uh, what about amongst the, the rest of the groups in that kind of scene then in LA during that time? Was there a nice kind of feeling between bands or was there a bit of rivalry going on? How was that? Well, there was some rivalry, but overall it was, it was very, very, uh, congenial between us all we were you know it was it was it was a fun supportive thing i mean i don't know if it was really as supportive as much as just fun you know we we, we all got together and <laughs> yeah the inner band friendships were were all over the place i mean you know and, and some of those friendships have lasted till today i mean i'm still close with a lot of those people so um yeah i mean it was great and you know george and mick and i had a very deep intense camaraderie and i had a very deep connection with Don, you know, the band as a group never, you know, we, we only had moments where we really congealed as a full band, which I wish there was more of that. But um, like I say, the ones that were there were great. And then the time that I, you know, the, the, the camaraderie that George and Mick and I had was very, very solid. 
And yeah, my friendships with other bands, um, that kind of got us through a lot of the rough periods. Now, the band split, didn't it, after the Monsters of Rock tour, kind of around 88, I think it was. Now, you talked about the, the difficulties within the, the group there with the members and everything like that. How did you feel at the time when the decision was made to call it a day? Uh, I felt it was the wrong thing to do. And I vo- voiced my opinion at the, at the time. Um, it was really, you know, it was Don leaving is what, what, what happened. And, you know, I had, uh, I had a problem with that. I didn't think it was the right thing to do. I mean, I understood why. I mean, I, I got his frustrations. I also think there was ambition in there on his point that, um, that I thought was, was not going to serve him well. Um, but, uh, I was, I was a bit distraught. I mean, you know, I was also partly relieved though. I got to say, because the tension was heavy. Mm -hmm. That was, that was five intense years of, of kind of a dark feeling. You know, we, you know, more days than not, you'd walk onto the bus and you'd kind of, there's that feeling between everybody. And, that that's that's that ages you quick and and that I was relieved to be away from that um but overall I felt it was a mistake and um you know I, I certainly financially it was a mistake uh but um career wise it was a mistake I, I think um you know maybe maybe had we not done that maybe we would have burned out in a different way that would not have given us life later on down the line so so that could be one positive of us breaking up then. Um, and it certainly had, it certainly gave me an opportunity where I had to deal with my personal demons and addictions. Um, so that was good about breaking up. But overall, I was not happy about it. Brilliant bass player Jeff Pilson there. He's been a member of Foreigner for the last, what, 15 years or so, and he's worked on loads of other great projects too. Such a busy guy. And you can hear more about all that sort of stuff on episode 33 of Vintage Rock Pod. And sneak preview time, if you're a fan of Dokken, then in a couple of weeks I'll have a great chat with another member of that classic Dokken lineup that you won't want to miss. Anyway, next up, let's hear from a rock and roll Hall of Famer, founding member of the legendary Jefferson Airplane, guitarist Yorma Kaukonen. He joined me to chat about his wonderful career on episode 35 of Vintage Rock Pod. Obviously, the group had loads of top hits and records, and he speaks about those, uh, Grace Slick and his lasting friendship with her, Woodstock, of course. But in the short snippet I'm about to play you, uh, we're going to talk about his time with Janis Joplin in the very early days of that California movement. You mentioned there everybody kind of knew everyone and everyone got along and all that sort of stuff from all the different cultural and arts backgrounds. But when you talk about the legendary figures that you guys kind of hung around with, I mean, did Jerry Garcia and Janis Joplin's and these sort of people who nowadays are just held up in awe, aren't they? I mean, what do you remember of, of Janis the first time you played with her or the first time you heard her sing? What do you, what are your memories of Janis? Well, so I moved to California in 1962. Uh, I just moved from, I'm an East Coast guy, I just moved from the East Coast. And, and the very first week that I was in Santa, Santa Clara, which is 50 miles south of San Francisco, I'm wandering around this little campus at the school I was going to, and there's a flyer on a telephone pole, and, it's, and they talk about a hoot nanny, which we know today is open mics. And, and in any case, I went, wow, that's great. So I grabbed my guitar, and I went down, and, that, and it was the first or second weekend that I was in California. And at this particular hoot nanny was a guy named Richmond Talbot, who was a blues player from Berkeley, and Janis Joplin, of all people. I'd never met her before. I didn't know what the deal was. You, you know, Janice, when we look at Janice, there's many different Janices. There's Pearl. There's the Flash. In those days, 
Janice was dressed, well, much like I am today, jeans, a work shirt, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> and so we're sitting in this tiny little backstage in this little sort of hole-in-the-wall coffee shop, and, and she didn't bring an accompanist with her. And we're just talking, and, and then what are we going to do? And she said, and she, without even knowing me, she said, well, maybe we can play together. And I said, what do you do? And she started singing a song. I flipped out. You know, I mean, as a young guy back then, you know, having having not really heard any of my contemporaries that, that were that good, it was like, I'm in the presence of greatness. And we started, we started to play, and I, I knew, if I didn't know her songs specifically, I knew the landscape of them so I could play them. And I remember the first time that we, we got on stage, and at, at the offstage, there was one teeny little mic, and these little speakers made it so it was louder than the espresso machine. Janice didn't need a mic. And I just remember thinking that, that I'm in the presence of greatness and this is a significant moment, you know. So it didn't surprise me any when Janice became the later Janice. Now, over the next couple of years before the rock and roll, because this is pre-rock and roll for us, the uh, next couple of years, you know, whenever Janice needed an accompanist down the peninsula, because none of us had cars back then, so 50 miles was a big deal, could take all day in a bus. So, and so she would say, I'm, I've got a gig here and so, can you find your way to it and we'll play the gig? And I went, absolutely. And occasionally, because we got, we got to know each other, when she would do something in San Francisco, she couldn't get one of her go-to guys in San Francisco, she'd call me up and I'd get in the bus and go to San Francisco. Incredible stuff, absolutely Good stuff, phenomenal. it really is. You know, you can't make that stuff up. <laughs> you can't indeed. The brilliant Yoma Kaukonen there. You can hear the full chat with him on episode 35 of Vintage Rock Pod. And last but not least, let's hear from the former lead singer of Rainbow, Doogie White. Richie Blackmore made Doogie the fourth frontman for his band, following on from Dio Graham Bonnet and Joe Lynn Turner. Doogie's performance with Rainbow earned him some amazing spots. He was lead singer with Ingve Malmsteen's group and Michael Schenker's group as well. And these days, he's the frontman with the classic group Alcatraz. So in episode 37, well, we had to speak about Richie. For, from a boy from Motherwell to have done what you've done, I mean, that's fairly phenomenal. And some of the artists that you've worked with, and you mentioned Richie Blackmore, so we'll, we'll touch quickly on, on your time with Richie in Rainbow. I mean, yeah. we all know the story about the cassette that was sent over and then it was suddenly found that it took a little while and he heard your voice and that was it. He wanted you to, to join the band and you went in there and Stranger and Us All was made and everything like that. I mean, what, what do you remember of your time with Rainbow and with Richie? I, I, remember, I remember most of it. You know, we all make we all tell our stories to make ourselves seem better. But I had a great time doing it. We spent a long time together. I mean, we spent six weeks in in upstate New York, uh, again in an old house with a with a mobile um, truck and thing. Just as a get to know, we switched bass players. We got rid of one guy and we brought Greg Smith in, and 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 we played a lot of football because mm. you know we did as much football as we did writing. <laughs> but that was the last time I got to write like that. When you go into when you when you're all together, you can have breakfast and you can go in and you can start work. And you can go and have lunch and you can start work. You can go and play football, come back and do more work. And we did that for about six weeks. But only two of the songs from those sessions, maybe three actually, three from the, from those sessions of of the tunes that we wrote made it to the album. One was Stand and Fight, which was the first song we wrote together. Black Masquerade, which changed lyrically and melodically, um, but the music remained the same. And another one called Silence, 
so that remained as well. But it, it was a it was a fabulous time for me. It was my first time with my foot in, on the big monitor in my own spotlight. So I mean, that's exciting for anybody. <laughs> but it was a long time ago. I mean, I've covered I've covered many many thousands and tens of thousands of miles <laughs> since then. But I still look back on it very fondly because he was the guy who took the chance on me yeah. and and introduced me to the wider rock fraternity. Now that's not the first time he did that. You know, you know, he did that with Coverdale. He took Coverdale from a, a trouser shop in in Red Car. You know, he took other people from bands that weren't going anywhere. And what he does is he gives you a launch pad and just cuts you free when it's time for him to change. That and that's what he did. And it, and it's up to to you to make your own path after that, if you can. Some make it, some don't. That sounds a very similar tale. I spoke to Joe Lynn a few months ago and he said pretty much the same thing himself. Um, how did you yeah. feel then going into Rainbow, following those sorts of voices? Because obviously the Joe Lynn era was very commercially successful. Graham Bonnet's album was massive. And then obviously Ronnie Dio before that. I mean, crikey. Fearless. Absolutely fearless. Because I was a fan. Yeah. And as a fan, I had an idea of what I would want to hear as a fan. Richie was at the top of his game. Richie hadn't, I don't think Richie had played as well. The battle rages on, he was playing absolutely magnificently on that tour. And he carried that into this version of Rainbow. And I don't think, honestly, that he had played that well since the Dio Rainbow days. I don't think he had played that well. And he was fired up and he was enthusiastic. He had something to prove. And I I had no fear because he, he had my back. He believed in me and he knew that we could do good work together. We never exchanged words. Um, we always got on well. We used to watch football together. We would go to blockbusters and pick up some ridiculous movie, go back, eat lasagna and watch, watch a movie, kick a ball around. And then one day he just decided that that wasn't going to be happening anymore. And, and from then on, it, it was just a roller coaster ride until it finally ended. The great Doogie White there. Hear the full interview with him on episode 37 of Vintage Rock Pod. And he's back on next week's big interview show too. So expect more tales from his career on that. But that's it for Great Rock Stories Volume 5. Please check out those older episodes and don't just stop with those ones. If you're a newer listener, then please go right back. I know it's a long way to scroll, but there really are some amazing guests and stories on the earlier episodes too that seem to get a little bit buried these days given how many episodes I put out. But they do deserve your love, so please do go back and check them out. Also, please check out Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. The channel is really growing now. Some nice little bits on there that are different to the podcast. And it includes a daily poll I put out that attracts more than a thousand votes every single day. There's loads of great discussions surrounding these two, so don't miss it. It's definitely worth subscribing. Again, it's absolutely free. Just go on YouTube, search for Vintage Rock Pod and hit that big red subscribe button. And you activate the bell as well so you get to see the polls as they pop up every single day. Anyway, that's it for me then. I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks, of course. So until then, take care.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 